I hope that those little videos will be encouragement to you week after week. And the reason I say that is because if, if you serve, there are moments that we all, we all struggle with this. We all think we're the only one that serves. That's how it feels sometimes. And, and the truth is, it's never that way. There's always others. And in our case, as a church, like Jason said, there is a huge list of people who actually serve in a lot of different ways. And my prayer is that those little videos just week after week um, would bring some encouragement to you to just not only to get to know people and where they're at, but just to see how the body serves together. And speaking of serving, I want to just pause for a moment and thank um, all the folks who are doing just that on a day like today. Because um, we got people showing up at different places who are serving kids still today and, and leading worship today. And some people are pushing snow today. Um, I am grateful and just thankful for um, what you're willing to do. When we moved to the Midwest like 26 years ago, we come from, came from the South. And so the word that I got was that Midwesterners were tough. And when I got here, I found out some are. <laughs> That's the most positive way I know how to state it. Some are, but what I'm grateful for is that when it comes to the Heart of Life Church, we have got some of the toughest folks that I know, and I am so grateful for that. For those of you who might be joining us from a different part of the world, I need to let you know it is cold here. In fact, it is literally below zero and that doesn't happen a whole lot um, around here, but, but it is right now. But here's what I want us to, to talk about today. It's not just that the air temperature is below zero right now. I, I got to tell you, it feels like the emotional temperature is below zero right now. Um, you asked me why, and the word I'm going to use is, well, loss, because since we met last week, the Chiefs lost, right? And, and what a weird, weird game, and, and, and I mean, we, we, we talk about having fun with all that, but it was so bizarre to watch this thing unfold, and you really couldn't explain what all was happening. But even since that loss last week, when it, even just in the Chiefs' kingdom, if you will, a, a former coach passes away. Um, a, a Kansas City news writer actually passes away. There is this very public story of a little girl who is fighting for her life in a Kansas City hospital. Um, I, I'm, I'm, loss is powerful. Not just in Super Bowls, but it is powerful more so in life. Loss is so powerful, it can even strike a blow to the thing that we as Jesus followers say matters more to us than anything else, our faith. And so the question I want to wrestle with today is when your faith gets sacked and the result is doubt, what do you do? I'm glad you're here. 
I really do. I, I knew there'd be a few people that I could at least right, be able to speak to live today and thankful for all of you who are joining us online. And again, so grateful for Lewisburg crew who is back up and, and, and gathering today and, and for the Harrisonville group who's meeting for the first time. We will always remember the first time, the first Sunday, right? Because it was below zero. But I'm so grateful for you guys and really excited about what God is going to do there together. Uh, by the way, before we dig in, I'm sorry to make you relive that Super Bowl thing. Sorry. But hey, we, we've had almost a week to heal now, so we'll, we'll keep trudging forward. Early in our journey through Luke, we have been introduced to a man by the name of John. We often refer to him as John the Baptist. Okay, that's not his denomination, but he was John the Baptizer. That's why he gets that name. Now, here's his story. He is, he is really the, the last of the Old Testament prophets, if you will. He's, he's the greatest. That's what Jesus said. He's the forerunner of the Messiah. He's the one given the precious purpose of announcing, right, the, the greatest arrival in history, that Jesus is here. Now, John and Jesus are related. Their families are related, so I'm saying, can you imagine what those family gatherings were like and the stories that got told? Like how many times did those families get together and they're reliving the story of, of how John's parents were too old to have kids, but God did a miracle. And here's John running around playing, right? And the story of how Mary would give birth to, to Jesus and, and yet be a virgin because God did a miracle. And there's Jesus and John and, and they're, they're running around just playing right, families together. A story is told of how angels were a part of both of those births. John would grow up to be the guy at the Jordan River that when he sees Jesus, he declares he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He actually baptizes Jesus. He sees the Spirit descend on Jesus like a dove, the Scripture says, and he, he hears the Father's voice that this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. John gets to see Jesus' power over disease, over demons, even over death. John got to experience all of that, and we're told that he had the Spirit of God from birth. That's important for you to know when we pick up the story today. This is how it reads in Luke chapter 7, verse 18. John's disciples told him, that's John, about all these things. These things are what Jesus has done. Calling two of them, he, that's John, sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? What is that? What is that? Are you the one? You know what that is? That's doubt. That 
is doubt. Are you the one, Jesus? I want you to recognize some things about doubt when we take a look at how the Bible really unpacks this for us. For example, did you know that in the Bible, doubt is very common for people who believe? That means some of us right now can take a deep breath. And I'm telling you, in the Bible, doubt is common for people who believe. It is actually a characteristic of some of the people who are what I would call most devout. It is in the life of Moses. We see it in Gideon, Elijah, Jeremiah, the the, the apostles, and, and now we actually see it in John the Baptist. And so maybe we would hear that and we would go, whew, that makes me feel better. So maybe we just don't need to worry about doubt. All right, it's gonna happen, no big deal. Well, that's not what I'm saying either today because we also need to recognize that doubt prevents me from fully believing. Is it common? Yes. But does it matter how we deal with it? Absolutely. Doubt is, is simply a struggle to believe. And if I don't deal with it, then I'm never going to truly live this life of nothing to lose. It creeps in from time to time, but how we respond must be intentional. Because doubt in the Bible can be momentary, it can be prolonged, or it can be permanent. And what we don't want to happen in our life is is to come to a place that our doubt just leads us to stop believing. Now, I'm telling you, if God creates people to whom he's going to reveal truth, then it's essential that God give us a way to sort out that information to come to a correct conclusion. And a part of that process, one of the components of rationality is doubt. Doubt in and of itself is not a horrible thing. It's actually a good place to start. It's a terrible place to finish. And that's what I want us to see today. It's okay, especially for people who are early in this walk with Jesus, that that there are doubts that arise. It's okay. It's not a bad place to start, but it's a terrible place to finish. And so we need to learn how to deal with it correctly. Great story. Great story. I love the story out of Mark's gospel where he records the time that a father who has a demon-possessed boy comes to Jesus. And that kind of stuff freaks us out, but it's real, right? It's real. Enemy forces are real. And this story is that a demon is affecting this little boy. Um, It has made him mute. Uh, it, It has made him have seizures. The story is that sometimes the demon will throw the boy to the ground, but other times throws him in the water, throws him in fire. I mean, the goal is to harm the little boy. He foams at the mouth, he grinds his teeth, and we're told in the story that it's been this way since childhood, which might lead us to believe that by the time the dad comes to Jesus, the boy might now be a teenager and I'm saying, let's, let's try to at least imagine a little bit. There's not just the physical issue, but embarrassment for a family. And the father comes to Jesus and he says, 
if, you know, Jesus, can you help us? And here's Jesus' response is, everything is possible for the one who believes. And the dad's response is famous. Here's what he says. I do believe. Help my unbelief. And, and we read that and, and we go, oh, wait, 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 what? I do believe. Help my unbelief. And I think some of the first times you read that story, your response wants to be, that makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. But can I tell you that once you have followed Jesus for a little while, every single one of us knows exactly what that dad means. We know exactly what he's talking about. I believe, help my unbelief. I want you to see today the greatest man, Jesus said, who has lived up until this point, John the Baptist, he has some doubts. Even after all that he got to experience, all the apostles struggle with doubt. So maybe it's understandable that we may wrestle with some too. But look again at John's question in verse 19. Are you the one who is to come? Jesus, are you the one who is to come? That is actually a word. It's a messianic, what we call title. It means it was one of the titles given to the Messiah, the one who, who, who would come. It's in the Psalms. We see it throughout the New Testament. Is Jesus the Messiah? That's what John's asking. And I'm telling you, John believes that Jesus is the Messiah. And a part of how I know that he believes is if we actually back up again to Luke chapter three, we, we've been through chapter three, but I want you to see this one more time. Verse 16, John answers them all. I baptize you with water, but the one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In the English translation, these words are separated. But in, in the actual language, it's all together. One who will come. It's the same word. It's the same phrasing that we just read. John asked the question, Jesus, are you the one to come? Here John knows. He believes. So what would make him now question that in chapter 7? He's bold enough to stand before crowds and declare it, but now in chapter 7, he doubts. Well, I'm going to remind you what happened. Herod Antipas, he was the king over Galilee in a, a near territory, and the story is that Herod Antipas although he was married, stole his own brother's wife. So he's married, but then he wants his brother's wife. He gets rid of his wife so that his brother's wife can come now to, to, to live with him. And everyone knew it and everyone ignored it, except John. And John confronts him about that issue. Not only that issue, but the Bible tells us about other issues. And the result is that 
Herod Antipas throws John in prison. Fort Machaerus is the name of it. We studied it when we were back in the early chapters of Luke. And I'm saying it's now chapter 7 and John is still in prison. He's still in prison. And doubt is beginning to grow on the edges of his faith. Try, try to imagine, try to put yourself in John's cell, if you will. He's in a prison cell, but come on, he's done exactly what God told him to do. He has carried out the mission exactly like God told him to do it. He didn't back down when everybody else would run from Herod. He, he did not. He stood his ground and he said what needed to be said, and now he's in prison. Can we all just agree that doesn't seem fair? This is my reward for a lifetime of faithfulness? And I'm going to be the first one to admit today. That is when I struggle the most with doubt. I struggle with doubt because it often surfaces when I think my circumstance doesn't fit with my faithfulness. <laughs> I struggle with doubt when I suddenly find myself in a situation that does not seem to fit with how faithful I think I have been to God. Where is the blessing that should be coming from my faithfulness? This circumstance, being in a prison cell, does not look like blessing. Couldn't Jesus do something about this? I try to imagine for John, I do, we get the picture, he's most comfortable in the wilderness, right? That's his story. Like, I don't even know if John likes hanging out at the house, you know? So to be confined to a box, to be confined to maybe a hole in the ground, right? Whatever that, what that prison would look like. After 18 months of a highly effective ministry, 18 months of massive crowds, incredible response, numerous baptisms, and then this is what loyalty to Jesus looks like? That's why John doubts. It's why most of us doubt. When my circumstance, it appears to me, doesn't seem to fit my faithfulness. We're told in this story that a few of John's disciples report to him what they're seeing Jesus do. And then John's response back to Jesus is this question, Jesus, are you the one? I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it again. This, this kind of doubt normally does not happen to people who are unfaithful. It doesn't. When a person is running from God, when a person is rebelling against God and then something bad happens to them, <laughs> normally the response is like, yeah, yeah, 
This is kind of what I deserve. It sounds exactly like if you remember one of the criminals who hung on a a cross beside Jesus, what was his statement? We are getting what we deserve. But John has walked this out with faithfulness. And John knows that Isaiah 61 says that the Messiah will set the prisoners free. But my doubt starts to rise when I think Jesus should take special care of me. And this certainly does not feel like special care. In fact, I'm wondering if he cares at all. It often happens in personal tragedy. That's when doubt will sometimes rise. It, It happens in personal tragedy. It can be the the loss of um, someone you love, um, a child, a spouse, a friend. It can be the loss of health. It can be the the loss of trust, honestly. It could be the loss of a job, loss of a home. I, I encourage people, never downplay anybody's loss. We have a way of always wanting to Right up the, the it was like, oh, I get, I get, yeah, I know you did, but here's what I don't ever downplay anybody's loss because you can't measure the weight of that on their heart. When I was probably about 19 years old, it was about in that time frame that I wrestled with the reality of heaven. I did. Like, is this real? And you know what caused it? My grandfather died. My grandfather died. Now, I grew up in church. I probably knew as much about heaven as most anybody in in church by that time. Um, But when I experienced that loss... I'm suddenly wrestling with, is this really real? Like, is heaven really real? And I'm I'm grateful that I had some patterns for how to walk through that because I faced that doubt and even did some of what we're going to talk about today. Like, what do you do with it? So that not only did I come out the other side, but I actually came out the other side stronger that actually helped me deal with even greater losses later in my life like my sister. When I was probably 17, I doubted, um, honestly, the genuineness of the church. I did. Um, because I all of a sudden was faced with this reality that there were, there were some leaders in the church that I went to, even deacons who believed that God loved certain color skin more than others. And it caused some great pain in my life of people that I had who, who were, happened to be different color skin. And I'm looking going, is any of this real? But I'm grateful to have had some patterns where I faced that. I faced it. And God actually grew my faith out of that to where later on in my life, I would actually face some more moments where the church was just flat out mean but I learned how to not equate that with what the heart of God really looked like. I'm saying we all doubt. If you follow him very long, you're gonna have some moments of doubt. Like, is this real? 
But what we do with that really does matter. Personal tragedy can lead us to some wrong expectations. And sometimes it's wrong expectations because of improper information, all right? Don't, don't get so hung up in my little categories today. I'm just trying to figure out a way to frame this for you. But I, I just, I want, sometimes, sometimes I doubt because my selfish view is coming into play. That's what this one's about. Here's what I mean. In the Old Testament, places like Isaiah 53, God's word was clear that the Messiah would suffer. You can go back and read it. That the one who would come, right? There was this whole, uh, him doing his sin-bearing work and it was going to require suffering on the part of the Messiah. But you know what the Jewish people had begun to do? They just pushed away all that suffering talk and what they looked for was a Messiah who would come and set up the kingdom and run the Romans out of town and return the glory and they just totally pushed the suffering away. They focused that the the wicked would be removed and the land would experience health and wealth and prosperity. The desert's going to blossom like a rose. The lion's going to lay down with the lamb. The Messiah's going to reign and all the nations will be at his feet. So Jesus, why aren't you getting rid of the Romans? Jesus, what do you mean you're going to die? Remember the conversation that Jesus has with his disciples when he's trying to tell them that his death is coming soon and Peter speaks, no, you're not going to (laughs) die. No, you're not going to die. Jesus, you're, you're going to live and you're going to conquer and you're going to be the king because he had completely pushed all that other talk out. Even when Satan tempts Jesus, we read it in Luke chapter 4. It's recorded in some of the other gospels. Pay attention to what Satan tempts Jesus to do. Jesus, just do a swan dive off the temple. And when you live, they'll see you're the man and they'll make you king. Jesus, turn, right, the the, the stones into bread. Uh, Show them that you can bring a permanent welfare state. Jesus, I'll give you all the kingdom. Why did Satan tempt him in that way? Because Satan is tempting Jesus to do what the people expected the Messiah to be. But Jesus knew what the real story was going to look like. John and the apostles, they all struggled when Jesus didn't live up to their preferred selfish view of who he would be and what he would do. And I'm saying sometimes we struggle with that too. But also, sometimes personal tragedy can lead to wrong expectations because of inaccurate information. And by inaccurate information, I mean misguided teaching. I mean teaching that's wrong. John is dealing with one of those misconceptions about the the, the Messiah. There had developed this idea that before the Messiah would come, there would be a string of prophets who came first. First would come Elijah, then would come Jeremiah, then would come prophet A, B, C, however many it was, and then the Messiah would come. That's why the conversation happens in Matthew 16 when Jesus asked the question to those disciples, who do people say I am? And what is their response? 
Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're prophet ABC. And Jesus says, well, who do you say I am? And, and Peter gets it right, right? You are the Messiah. I'm saying that conversation happens. It's reflective of a, of a popular concept that this is the way it's going to happen. And so now that's what John is asking Jesus from prison. Are you the one or are you just one who are in the line before the one comes? It was a popular idea. Problem is it was false. It was an inaccurate lens. And sometimes we do the same thing. Here's how it looks today. If there really is a God and he cares, then why is the world so messed up? If God really loves people, then why do children die and people starve and disease happens and wars occur, right? Why doesn't Jesus just stop all this madness now? And I'm saying that might be my idea and your idea of what he ought to do. But that is not what scripture says he's going to do now. It actually says that evil is going to get worse and worse and worse, that people will get worse and worse and worse. That's what it says. And so many are operating with this inaccurate view. It's information that sets us up for doubt because it's not actually the information that the Bible paints. Let me give you one more. One more is what I'm going to call incomplete it just means we lack the full perspective. We can't see the whole picture. We've got some correct info, but we can't see it all. Here's my example to us today. People who preach a health, wealth, prosperity, success gospel, when you do that, you sentence your hearers to a life of crippling doubt. There is no promise, there is no promise that in this life you will always be healthy. It's not there. There is no promise in this life that you will be healed. There is no promise in this life that you will be rich. There is no promise that in this life your career is going to be successful. There is no such promise until we step into the life that is to come and then suddenly all of those promises are yes. Then no more sickness. Then no more struggle. Then no more heartache. Then no more sin. No more selfishness. My point is though, those promises don't apply to now. Those promises apply to the life that is to come. But when you tell people that those promises apply now, you are programming them to reject the God and the gospel of the Bible because they live in confusion when God doesn't deliver like you said he would do. Don't do that to people. Don't do that. John couldn't see the gap that existed between the present and heaven. That's why he can't figure out why the kingdom isn't happening right now. Because John didn't have the information that Jesus was going to be rejected. That Jesus was then going to turn even beyond Israel to, to the world, the Gentiles. That the church was going to be born. 
and that for at least 2,000 years, that's what we know so far, that the church was going to be on this mission. And then after that, Jesus would return and then he would set up his kingdom. It was like that was a mystery in the Old Testament. They're, they're looking at the tops of two hills. The first hill is the fact that the Messiah is going to show up. That's Jesus coming. The second hill is that there's going to be a kingdom that he, that he reigns. What they cannot see is the valley in between that is the age in which we live where the gospel is being declared and shared, but the kingdom is not yet established. It's limited knowledge. It's limited knowledge. Even in Acts chapter 1, we'll get there. Jesus ready to ascend back to heaven, and you know what they're asking? Are you going to establish the kingdom? They're still trying to figure out why it's not happening now. So how does John deal with his doubt? Because come on, we need this. There's not a person I know who has followed Jesus very long that we don't need to know how does John deal with this. Here's what I want you to recognize first. John is asking Jesus. Don't you love that? Here's what that means. He's asking the one in whom he believes and doubts at the same time. That's the smartest thing John does. Faith is proven not by the absence of doubt, but by the way we respond to the presence of doubt. And what John does that is so beautiful, that is a model for us, he goes straight to Jesus. The worst thing you can do is keep your doubt to yourself. The best thing you and I can do is to ask God and to go to his word. We've got so much that John didn't even have yet, like the New Testament, right? John didn't have the whole second half of, of the Bible that you have. You now have 2,000 years that John didn't have of a view, of perspective of how this unfolds. We get to go to God's word and his spirit gives us sight. Maybe somebody taught you along the way that doubt is always wrong. Maybe somebody taught you that if you doubt, don't you ever say it, right? Don't you ever say the word if when, it, when, you, when you pray. Don't, don't you approach God with any doubt, Wow, that does not come from the Bible. I want you to see how Jesus responds to John. Verse 20, when the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? At that very time, interesting to me, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. Huh. How does Jesus respond? I want you to notice, first of all, that he does not get angry. Jesus doesn't get angry with John. I think sometimes that's why we don't approach God with our doubt, because we think God will act like everybody else acts if I doubt you or you doubt me, we have this, this temptation to, oh, I kind of take that offensive, right? You doubt somebody and they get mad at you, not God. Jesus doesn't respond in anger. But also notice, 
He demonstrates in part presently what's going to be complete eternally. It says that when the question is asked of Jesus, he unleashes this barrage of power. He, he demonstrates his power over disease, over demons, over, over blindness. Like this is what heaven's going to be like forever. But what you're seeing me do now is a glimpse of what will be. And it's letting you know that what I'm saying is for real. I really am who I say I am. And there really is going to be a kingdom. But I love the fact that it points so clearly. Has Jesus already been doing miracles like this? Yeah. But get it. When John asked this question of him, Jesus, like, he just puts it in another gear almost. Right, It says right then, John asked, and Jesus begins to just demonstrate his power. I'm saying... Jesus has already been doing miracles, but what he does right here is also very personal for John. And notice, he encourages John through what he does in the lives of other people. I don't want you to miss that. This unleashing of power is for John. But he doesn't get John out of prison. It's for John but he does it through other people. So here's what Jesus says, verse 22. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Go tell John. Why does he say go tell John those words? Because Jesus knows that John does know the Old Testament in regards to what it says. When the Messiah comes, John knows Isaiah chapter 26 that says, but the dead will live, their bodies will rise. That the, let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. He knows that John knows what Isaiah 35 says, that the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Jesus knows that John knows these are signs that the Messiah has arrived. And what Jesus does for John he does through the lives of others. Sometimes God will encourage you through what he does in the lives of other people. Sometimes I think we struggle to see that because all I want is God to do it in my circumstance. Get me out of prison. But sometimes God will encourage you through what he does in the lives of others. And I'm going to flip that around and ask you to recognize that sometimes God wants to encourage other people through the miracles that he does in your life. Therefore, you shouldn't be so hesitant to speak when God's power is seen for you. Because sometimes he's working in your life so that you will declare that truth so that others, even if they're not gonna get out of their prison, 
they are reminded that he really is who he says he is and that there is a kingdom to come that really is what he says it will be. You see what I'm saying? Man, we just make it so much about us. We make it so much about us that we almost ignore the power of God unless it's at work for me. <laughs> like, God work for you, right? right? But I kind of move on because I want him to work for me. But sometimes God's encouraging me through what he's doing for you. That happened to me multiple times, even this week, as I'm thinking about this message. God, several people shared with me some things that God had done in their life recently. And it was, I, it was almost like God going, see? See? Because my heart was just lifted, man. My, my heart was encouraged because I'm hearing what God ha- had done in their life. This is one of the reasons it is so important that we are constantly trying to get you to intentionally build strong relationships with other people who are following Jesus. This is why I try to convince you that it's not enough just to show up at an event like like, like once a week. You, you need to be connected to other people people who are following Jesus because sometimes the way God encourages you is that he works in their life. You got to pay attention to God's display of power around you. And when you see it, then you're going to decide you got to make a choice. Am I going to get jealous? Am I going to get angry because God worked in their life and he hadn't done it in mine? Or am I going to recognize what God is often up to that he's saying? I may not answer this the way you're asking me to answer it. And most of the time it's because we don't have that full picture. We are limited in our perspective. But he's saying, I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to work in the life of this person in your life team. I'm going to work in this life of a a person, right, and in friendship. I'm going to work in their life so that you will be reminded, I am who I say I am. And what I promise you is true. I don't know of a more vivid time that we need this than now. I can tell you that a lot of people struggle this time of year, period. A lot of people struggle going through winter. There's emotional things that are attached to that. Um, there's, There's... Depression sometimes that's attached to that. A lot of people struggle always every year going through winter. You throw into that, it feels like we've been in winter for like 18 months. That's what it feels like. Like, is this winter ever going to end? And, and some of that is, is being isolated. Some of that is what we've all been through. And you feel like you can't ever break out and you're ready to go back to some, some right normal stuff and being able to move like you used to move. And, and, and it, it just feels like that's gone on and on and on. And, and, and there are people who right now are so crazy discouraged from a political scene and, and, and the condition of our nation and things that are being signed into play that you just want to go, that is not what, what the heart of God right calls us to. And so people feel the effect of that and the weight of that. And, and, and there are people literally fighting for their lives right now still. We got people in heart of life who right now physically, uh, who are, who are who, they got to fight. They got to fight, right? Joe, man, we need you to fight. We need you to fight. Like I'm praying for Joe to be back up here and playing again. You got to fight. And there are others of you who have to fight. 
Here's what I'm saying right now. Don't you ignore any moment when God right now is putting something on your heart to go call them, text them. Hey, you know what? I haven't seen them. You know what? I haven't heard from them. I'm saying right now, the church needs to rise like never before and connect in the hearts of one another and don't underestimate the simple power of you just saying, how are you doing? You just saying, hey, I just felt like I was supposed to call you. If they've got nothing going on, awesome. You still don't know what God's going to do out of that. But I'm saying right now, we need one another because the truth is we've always needed one another. And sometimes God's going to use your story, what he's unleashing in your life to encourage them. The church the church, this is a part of our mission, and right now, it is time to rise and step into that mission. We have fallen into a season where, man, if it's uncomfortable and if it costs us anything, at times we struggle to do it. That This is a moment where even if it costs you, it's time to do it. Which one's John going to choose there's an interesting detail for John. Does he get jealous or is he going to believe? At the end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 14, verse 12, John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. John lost his head. He does not get out of prison. Then they went and they told Jesus. Why in the world would it say they went and told Jesus? Because John's still in the game. He still believes. He's still connected to Jesus. This is months and months and months after this conversation of are you the one? He's going to spend a lot more months in prison, but when John's life is done, the evidence is there. He's still connected to Jesus. He may not understand it all, but he believes. And there is a remarkable statement that Jesus makes at the end of this story in Luke chapter 7. This is what he says, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. That is so beautiful. Jesus is like, blessed is anybody who doesn't stumble on account of me. You know what he's saying? I, I recognize there could be a stumble. And you know why you might stumble? Because you're going to look at your personal tragedy and you're going to go, hey, this doesn't fit with faithfulness. Jesus, what are you doing? You might stumble because your selfish expectation and my selfish expectation causes us to read circumstances and we don't have the whole picture. Maybe it's, maybe it's popular thinking, but it's not correct information. It causes us to stumble over him, to be offended by him, to think that he's not the one. But Jesus says, there's blessing. There's blessing. I know you can't see it all, and I know you don't understand it all, and I know you're wrestling with it all, but there is blessing. So, a couple of questions and a song. Because, man, do we ever need to process this. Before I give you the question, the, the song that... Um, we're going to sing together today as a prayer. I, I really love this, this prayer, if you will. It's called Jesus is Better. Um, 
we learned it at uh, Secret Church uh, for the first time, I remember. Um, and it, the words are something like, in, in all my sorrow, Jesus is better. But this is my favorite line. You ready? My favorite line, make my heart believe. I love that. <laughs> so I'm declaring this truth, right? In my sorrow, Jesus is better. But make my heart believe. You know what that is? I believe, help my unbelief. <laughs> That's what that means. That's what that means. And we're going to sing that together just to go, God, this is our prayer. In our, in, we believe, but help us in our unbelief. So here's the questions that I want you to process today. Here's the first one. In the times you have wrestled with doubt, because you have, if you've walked this out very long, what was the greatest cause? Was it your selfish view of the situation? Was it false teaching that you received or was it a, a lack of perspective? What was it? I just want you to think back through that because for some of you, this is gonna bring to light like why maybe you still struggle a little bit. What's the thing that comes to your mind that you, you wrestle with the most when it comes to doubt and do any of these come into play? What do you need to do with that? What do you need to do with that? Here's my second question. What's the one thing you heard from this teaching that will help you respond correctly when you experience doubt. I'm saying when, because you will. What's the one thing maybe that stands out more than any other that you need to write down today, type it in today, do process it today and this week, God, that I wanna know how to handle this right. I don't have to be ashamed in my doubt. It's not a bad place to start. But it's a horrible place to finish. God, that's our prayer today. I pray for your people who are spread out all over the place today. And yet together we are linked. Because... I think it would be hard to find many of us who have not wrestled with some aspect of doubt. God, help us to be honest today. God, help us to be willing to allow you to look into our heart and help us to answer those questions of what's really been the cause of that. God, is it, is it my selfishness? Is it that I've, I've been holding on to something that you actually never said? Is it, is, it, is it my lack of just perspective? God, will you help us to be honest and God recognizing we're not you. We don't, we don't see everything like you see. We don't have the big picture like you have. God, we believe. Will you help our unbelief? I pray that there could be healing. I pray that there could be encouragement. God, I pray that even this week that your church would rise up and care for one another. Thank you for loving us. And thank you for giving us a story of John. And if he doubts, we probably will. But just like he did, it's what we do. We come to you. It's in the name of Jesus that I thank you.